In more than 1,000 federal employee complaints filed against their unions, only 1% of those employees prevailed. That's according to research by a group called Americans for Fair Treatment. It says it's dedicated to ensuring accountability for federal employee unions. Joining me with more, the group's special counsel, David Osborne. Mr. Osborne, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Tom. Yeah, Americans for Fair Treatment is a membership organization. So we work with a number of public employees throughout the country, including federal employees. And uh, most of them come to us because they have questions about their union and what the union is required to do in support of them. All right. Let me ask you this question first, just before we get to the research and what you found is ordinarily we hear about complaints against agency unfair employment practices, unfair labor practices. But you're saying that there are complaints about the unions that employees are members of. What are the nature of those types of complaints that they tend to lodge? Sure. I also happen to be a practicing attorney, and I've helped employees litigate some of these claims in state labor boards. Before the FLRA, it's very similar. What an employee might allege against their union is that the union has refused to process a grievance and that the grievance has merit to it. I think there's a lot of traction here when an employee happens to be a non-member and the union refuses to process the grievance. Another allegation is that the union has threatened an employee because they've refused to become a, a union member. Also, there might be a retaliation charge that once the employee files a ULP, that the union has threatened them. Employees cannot also allege that their union has failed to negotiate in good faith with the agency. Often you see an agency making these allegations, but an employee can do the same thing. And another example, if there's a strike that the union has either proposed or wants to call or participate in or support a strike and the employee doesn't want to participate or they're not allowed to strike. Yeah, that would be um, more at the state and local level than because federal level, there's no strike capability statutorily, correct? Right. And so I'll give you an example of a uh, a ULP charge that was successful against a union. It was a state charge in Pennsylvania. We litigated it to the hilt, and it involved a union that was going into negotiation over pension obligation. And the state entity actually provided several different options to the union, but the union hid those options from the employees when they came to the ratification meeting. This is not uncommon. The union presents basically one option during the ratification meeting, and they want to induce ratification. So they present it as if it was the only option. When some of the employees asked a question, well, what about this other thing we wanted? The union hid that information intentionally. That's a great example of an unfair labor practice charge against a union, but, but it's not the only kind. All right. Let's talk about what you found from the Federal Labor Relations Authority. I guess you FOIA'd their data on complaints about unions, and principally you got data concerning the American Federation of Government Employees, which is the biggest federal union, and the National Treasury Employees Union, which I think is the second biggest. What did you ask for? What did the data show that's going on here? There are some 4,000 unfair labor practice charges every year before the FLRA. We weren't interested in all of those charges. What we were interested in is the exact scenario that we've been talking about here, an individual filing a charge against an employee organization or a union. So we asked for that data from late 2015 at the time. It was even seven years at the time. So we got data from 2015 in December to 2022 in December. And the data was for charges every year that are brought by an individual against their employee union. What we got was 1,200 charges over that span of time. That's an average of about 173 charges every year. 
and the overwhelming majority of charges, perhaps fitting what you're talking about, these are the biggest unions, were charges filed by individuals against AFGE or, or the NTEU. And AFGE far outstripped the NTEU. It was um, out of the 1,211 charges, um, 935 were filed against AFGE and 108 were filed against NTEU. The other handful were from smaller unions. We are speaking with David Osborne. He is special counsel at Americans for Fair Treatment. And then you looked at how the FLRA adjudicated those more than 1,000 complaints. And what happened? What did you find? Most of those charges were pretty quickly dismissed, over a majority of them. And another, say, 45% or so were withdrawn by the individual at some point prior to a determination. So they probably engaged at some level with their union. And for reasons we don't know from the public records, they were withdrawn. A very, very small percentage, fewer than 1% were settled and fewer than 1% were actually adjudicated all the way to an enforcement action by the FLRA. That seems like a little bit of a statistical anomaly that less than 1% were adjudicated in some manner. Half went out the door before it even got to that point, and nearly half were dismissed. What's going on, do you think? Well, I think the real story that comes out of this is the systematic difficulty for public employees in litigating these charges. So I'm a lawyer, and I've helped with some of these, but I've had to do it pro bono because most of the time, you're not going to get any damages out of this. If you do get some damages, I will have burned through that in the first hour as an attorney. So what employees are facing in this circumstance is basically going unrepresented against their public employee union, supposed to be representing them, but the allegation is that they're not. And the union, of course, has a lot of lawyers. So that's a difficult scenario for any public employee to really litigate and find success. On the other hand, you could argue, just to play devil's advocate here, that 1,000, 1,100 complaints over seven years, given the number of people that are represented by NTEU and AFGE, that doesn't seem like people are all that dissatisfied. And there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of employees, and over seven years, you know, a tiny, tiny percentage lodged something against the union. You also have to imagine the difficulty in even having the bravery to file a charge in the first place. So who knows who even decided against filing a charge because going against your union is a really big deal. In working with employees, I've often had requests that we help them install cameras on their property or on their car. Federal employee unions are not the Teamsters of the 1960s and 70s, but the kind of intimidation that they face and social pressure that they're going to experience at work is really formidable. Yeah, I was on a strike in the 1970s, and man, when the Teamsters showed up to deliver paper to the newspaper, you better get out of the way because they'll run right over a picket line of another AFL-CIO union. That's so right. That's a you know, personal experience. One other point I wanted to ask you about is you mentioned that in some cases the union fails to represent in a action that the employee needs to bring, and that employee is not a union member. And there's that little anomaly in the federal space where you get covered by the union bargaining agreement, even though you can opt out of paying the union. I mean, why should the union bother if you don't even pay your dues? The reason is that the union's the exclusive representative. So if I'm in an employee workplace, I really don't have the choice to go it alone. I'm going to be governed by a collective bargaining agreement that was bargained by the union and the employer, basically without my participation. In fact, under union rules, I'm probably not allowed to ratify that or even ask questions about it. It's basically foisted on me. So 
when it comes time to litigate a grievance, I think it's only fair that the union would have to represent the employee under the rules that it has itself negotiated for that employee. Got it. And so just to summarize, what's your best advice for people that feel aggrieved by a union? What should they do short of hiring a lawyer and going broke? <laughs> well, there are a couple of options. So, so um, Americans for Fair Treatment, the organization that, of which I'm special counsel, um, can provide a little bit more specialized guidance depending on their situation. But if it comes time to litigate against a union, there is at least one organization that provides free legal representation. It's called the Fairness Center. It's a separate organization, but we've referred a number of employees over there, and they've done some neat work that I don't think any other public interest law firm has ever done. That's free legal representation, so they can review your case and figure out if it would be a good one to bring. All right. Interesting wrinkle. David Osborne is special counsel at Americans for Fair Treatment. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to their research at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage, it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. 
What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, de describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed 
Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me... Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today. It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.